Hey everybody, welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, uh, where we break down the health tech news so you don't have to, and we're here every week. Um, I'm delighted to say that this week uh, we have Francesca with us, who quite unbelievably, because I have her on video, has 30 years of experience in healthcare and is now the founder and CEO of NEN. I've also got Jessica here from the Somex team, but Francesca, welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, James. Hi, Jessica. Hey. So Francesca, delighted to have you here. Why don't you give us a little rundown of yourself and Nen before we get cracking into the stories for this week? Yeah, happy to. So, um, you know, I've I've been in this space uh, for quite some time, focusing on digital health for about the past uh, nine years. I was a venture capital um, digital health investor. I've been a chief digital officer for pharma, and now I'm, um, after recovering from my pharma PTSD, I've decided <laughs> to start my own fund, my own firm, uh, my own company and uh, called NEN, which means kids in Catalan. We're based in, in Barcelona, although our team is completely distributed across the world. And we're looking to create digital solutions for kids. And in our first indication is kids with cancer to help them manage their pain. Beautiful. My first question, based in Barcelona, what is the health tech scene like in Barcelona? It's emerging. You know, I was pretty impressed when I was a VC by how scrappy the companies are in Barcelona. There's a huge startup scene but less of a of a VC scene so the companies i've seen here do a lot with not that much um with very good success so you know i think it's growing uh there's there are a few hubs there's the barcelona health hub which i've been involved with since inception and they have about 3 or 400 companies corporates startups investors involved I think it ranks, you know, top five in the digital health space in particular. So it's it's pretty big, but it's not very well known. And I think we, we need to do a better job of um, of putting a, uh, using our megaphones to spread the word about Barcelona. Absolutely. Um, reason I ask is that at Somex, we're always looking for places in the sun to work. <laughs> um, so I'd be delighted to take the Somex team out to Barcelona potentially for uh, a week of working. So yeah, I'm not going to pass that by. It's not a bad place to work or live. <laughs> oh, well, I bet not. I bet not. No, plenty of culture, plenty of nightlife, plenty of uh, sun. Yeah, glorious. James, you do realize that verbal contracts stand and the Somex team will be taking notes <laughs> and reporting back at team day next week. I'm sure. Cool. All right, let's crack in some stories. In the news this week, um, Jessica's on the podcast, so unsurprisingly, we're going to be talking about women's health, but there has been some women's health uh, in the news this week uh, and some interesting stories that we can tie in some of the work that Francesca's doing too. So uh, over to you, Jessica, what has been in the news for you this week? Well, I'm actually delighted to start by saying that obviously I just took over last week's episode talking all about women's health, which was wonderful. And then that just followed into the beginning of the week when we announced that uh, Dr. Helen O'Neill from Hertility was going to be joining us 
live on stage at the Health Tech Podcast Live. So I just coined the phrase uh, Pink Monday instead of Blue Monday. Everyone's talking about, you know, mental health, which is great. But I co-opted that for women's health and I feel quite proud of myself for doing so. And I'm really pleased that the theme is carrying on into this week. So um, we'll see how, how long that continues. But there, as you say, there is lots of women's health stories this week. We have three in Pigeon. And the first one comes from McKinsey. And that basically is talking about, it's a report that they've just launched. So they launched it yesterday. Today is Thursday. They they launched it on Wednesday. Um, And they talk about closing the women's health gap. And apparently there is a $1 trillion opportunity to improve lives and economies. That is a lot of money. And it talks about how that could boost the global economy. And I think probably at a time where the economy is not looking too rosy, that looks like a very compelling opportunity. I don't know if anybody else has taken a look at this one and there's anything that's kind of leapt out at them. But it's encouraging, I think, also just to see an organization like McKinsey turning their attention to women's health and really shining under the spotlight and having invested that time and energy into really understanding what's going on in this space and what not just the opportunity is, but some of those drawbacks that we, we you know, we talk about a lot. But um, I guess really committing that to, you know, something that's research-led and insights, insights-driven. And it's had a lot of airtime across my social channels this week. Everyone seems quite excited about it. So I think there'll be a lot of people talking about it for um, a good few weeks to come. I think it's great to see. The time has, has certainly come and it's, um, you know, I see both within the digital health space as well as the VC space, a real emerging focus on on women's health. So I think that's that's wonderful. I'm hoping that we see some of that focus shift as well to pediatric digital health, because I think there are so few opportunities within that space. And that was one of the driving forces for for starting men. I was really, really surprised by the dearth of opportunities for kids. And who better to leverage tech than than kids? So I'm hoping some of this um, this women's health boom will spill over to to kids' health as well. Hmm. Um. And one thing for me with this, right, is that I think this this rightly so a lot of headlines around a data gap, underrepresentation underfunding of women founders who found women's health companies and there's a lot of kind of there's been a uh, i guess a a period that we've gone through of a lot of negative language i think it's just very clever and intentional that they've described it as a trillion dollar opportunity and it comes a little bit tainted in a way that it has to become a bit of a thing, I guess, that they've called it an opportunity and oh, some people might take notice now. But it is true in a way that by calling it a, a trillion dollar opportunity, it's very kind of, I don't know, emotive language to get anybody to look at this without then their biases of the subject matter. You've sort of gone in at the level of, well, who, the biases are irrelevant almost because this is a trillion dollar opportunity. You're sort of elevating the financial opportunity beyond any kind of, st- I, again, dread to use the term stigma when it comes to something that affects 51% of the world population. But do you see what I'm saying? That 
like, I think it's just interesting and clever language, but it's tainted with like, oh, it's a shame that I've had to raise that as a point. Um, but I think it is also still very good that they've done that. And yes, they have said closing the women's health gap, colon, a trillion dollar opportunity to improve lives and economies. I think it's a, it's a very unifying piece of work that very eloquently and actually relatively succinctly goes through some incredible statistics to elevate some incredibly important points beyond the emotive part of the conversation to an actually more economic and financial one. So wherever you're getting your motivation to actually get involved in this, this sort of caters for you, no matter what angle you're coming from. And I'm sure, Francesca, for you, um, being from the VC world and being from a, a you know financially driven world, uh, maybe not the early seed rounds, but actually later on when you start to look at more financial metrics later on, um, this sort of stuff actually matters. These reports actually matter. This does influence the behavior. When you speak in a financial way, it turns heads in a different way to the more emotive conversation of, well, shouldn't we just do better because we should do better? It's like, actually, no, there's a financial incentive behind it now. So I don't know. What do you think along those lines? Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's quite clever. It's also very important. And quite frankly, you know, whatever we'll take whatever we can get yeah, <laughs> from yeah. a tr uh, the point of view of attracting investors to the space, attracting entrepreneurs to the space. So, you know, it, it, I think it speaks volumes that, um, that that sort of emotive language is necessary and required to draw more attention to the space. But, you know, being pragmatic about it, 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 it is, and it's, it's useful. You mentioned the 51% of the, the population are, are women. So it shouldn't require that sort of emotive language, um, you know, mm. but we know that, that to be the case, you know, and, and similarly with pediatrics, pediatrics are a quarter of the population. So 25 of the population are our children. Wow. They're 100% of our future. So it's important to invest in pediatric health and wellness as well. Mm. One of the things I think is interesting about this is that while it is emotive language, it's also not. And I, I think that you both raise interesting points about investment there where, you know, we are all very well scored in the challenges with VC in particular, VC funding and, and the lack of diversity amongst, um, you know, VC and also decision makers in VC, I think crucially decision makers about where that money flows to and who gets the funding and all of those sorts of things. I think the beauty of reports like this is, first of all, it comes from a, a well-respected brand. It comes from a well-respected brand that VCs are going to look to and trust in their decision making. It's very factual as well. So it talks very clearly and candidly about a financial incentive. And that financial incentive is often what is driving VC, right? Like we know that, you know, some funds are also driven by purpose and impact. But fundamentally, it's about returns. And I think, in fact, I was at an event recently where they said it's about returns and it's about returns and it's about returns. So clearly, you know, the finances are, <laughs> you know, the, the most important part. But it, I think it really kind of, sets out the shop to say that if you're not investing in women's health, you're making a big mistake here because look at the financial opportunity. And I think it's that data that then hopefully VCs 
regardless of gender, but, you know, again, not wanting to lean into a stereotype, perhaps people who don't experience these problems personally for themselves, they can start to understand why they should be investing in it over and above the actual impact that it's having and the problem that it's solving because they can see that there is returns here. There is money on the table for the taking if they deploy. And I th- so I think it's a really important signal from in that respect to to the market. And it, as I say, it's a, a it's a brand that is trusted. And so I think it leans on the emotive, but leaning on the data is really helpful too. And um, you know, it's mm. was JP Morgan last week. You know, lots of investment chat there, right? And one of the one of the things that came up in some of the conversations I was in was actually unexpectedly, you know, the greater emphasis this year on women's health. And someone even said that this year on one day, there was eight different women's health events, which is, you know, unheard of in one of those spaces. So it seems to me that, you know, whilst I don't think this is an overnight solve, this is not like, you know, the balm to getting channeling funding into women's health, I do feel like at least the conversation is shifting here. And I do feel like investors are starting to sit up and take notice to say, there is a financial opportunity here, you know, if we want to just be really black and white about it. And that is going to incentivize them. They're talking about it. And I think that's where action starts. I think we'll we'll see a lag in terms of the trickle down of the getting the funding into the right places. But I think it's reports like these that really throw their weight behind, as you say, like a taboo, stigmatized space, regardless of whether it should be or not, that do help, you know, create momentum. And I hate to say it that like, you know, I I joke that I come on and talk about women's health a lot. But and there's lots of women like me who are shouting much louder than I am about these topics, but they're not being listened to. But I think if you're not going to listen to people who have that lived experience, you might just listen to a report from McKinsey where they've also invested a lot of money into into a report to provide credible data. So I think from that perspective, it's it's exciting. It's kind of, don't want to say it, but maybe playing VC at their own game, feeding them what they, they need in order to make the decisions we want to see. And that FOMO is really important in VC. I think having you know, a a head of steam building up around certain indications or certain areas for that are ripe for investment is really important. And that will drive investment into these areas. So I I think that's incredibly important. And, you know, the, the cachet of having McKinsey say it, and, Mm -hmm. you know, not to disparage all of the women who are really working hard for this, a group of women fighting for this, does add a lot of gravitas and is really important for the space. Mm. I guess flipping that on its head a little bit, just to come back to the work that you're doing with Nun, how how do you find conversations with investors around ch- children's health and helping them to understand the need and, again, to be really candid, the opportunity in in tackling challenges that children are experiencing because part of me thinks that perhaps they might be more emotionally engaged in that because even if whether you're a man or a woman or however you identify you can have a child um you know it's not about you don't have to have ovaries in order to be able to identify with an issue um 
But then I guess also on the flip side of that, there is something about where children are concerned that it feels like it's much more sensitive. There's more inherent risk. There's maybe more that can go wrong and you want to obviously protect children as much as possible. So how how does that look, you know, in, in that space? So it's it's been a very interesting journey because I, um, when I was a VC, I didn't look into pediatric opportunities. And it wasn't because I was opposed to investing in them. I just didn't see any. So there's this kind of knee jerk that pediatrics is niche because you're dealing with one part of the, of the spectrum of, of life. But on the other side, if we look into, you know, aging and geriatrics, I haven't ever heard anyone say, oh, well, we shouldn't invest in Alzheimer's or Parkinson's because that's too niche. So there's this strange dichotomy that exists, and I don't know why. Um, and you would think because of, um, of the fact that, you know, many of us have children or interact with children or see children that we, we wouldn't, you know, it's strange to me that you wouldn't want to invest and promote the wellness of a child. I'm not suggesting that, you know, VCs are saying, I don't want to invest in, you know, who cares about kids and who cares about kids with cancer that are managing their pain. That's not what I'm saying at all. (laughs) <laughs> but there's just this and but there's this just this initial reaction that oh you know that could never be profitable or that could never be a good return on investment because kids mm. are niche and kids really aren't niche you know and the the space that we're playing in WHO has said that of the 400 million kids that are alive today in this world um, a quarter of them suffer from chronic pain as defined by more than three months of pain during a year. That's a massive number of children. Um, and, you know, when we think about the dearth of psychologists to treat those kids, even in places that have the most developed health systems, parents are still waiting six to 12 months to get in front of a pediatric psychologist. And even Within that group, very few of them are trained in managing pain. So this is this is a massive market. This is a huge area of unmet need that can, you know, this gap, this access gap that we're seeing can be really readily solved by a digital solution. So I'm actually surprised that there aren't more players in this space. There are a few players within, um, you know, managing procedural pain or the anxiety and depression associated with that pain, which is hugely important. But in the context of a kind of one-time pre-procedural treatment, rather than looking across, um, you know, how do we reprogram the neural networks to have a sustained change in terms of behavior and in terms of of pain management for these kids. You know, many kids, kids who have chronic migraine or sickle cell or IBD, IBS or aplastic anemia suffer from pain their entire lives. So if you can help them reprogram and redirect how they're thinking about that, that can have a really profound impact on the on their lives. And these kids grow up to be adults very often, particularly it, it's, it's true of pediatric cancer survivors they have about 50% increase in likelihood to develop mental health issues, anxiety, depression, chronic pain, 
because these pain, negative pain memories in pediatrics are really sticky and they can survive through survivorship and into adulthood. So they have kind of idiopathic chronic pain because the psychological aspects of pain were never addressed as children when they were experiencing it. So, um, you know, it, it's, the, it's surprising that the knee jerk is always, oh, no, this is too niche. But when you dig into the numbers, these are these are big markets. These are huge areas of unmet need that can be quite readily and handily managed via via digital solutions. Yes, it will be very interesting uh, for McKinsey to do another one of these on pediatrics because or even, I mean, there's plenty of areas. This structure is wonderful. I honestly encourage every single person listening to this podcast to have a look at this report. The graphs are well, beautiful in their design and relatively harrowing in their content. But if you were, if you're wondering about, you know, some of the content of this, it really all boils down to a ratio of three to one for every dollar invested, approximately $3 is projected in economic growth. And obviously that's invested into, into women's health. And if you're questioning validity of that as a statistic uh i can point you to reference 92 which it is let's just say robust in its calculation for the amount of things that have gone into this com- uh, calculation it is incredibly clear that most of the paper has gone into that so uh they make a split between high income and low income countries and low income countries actually requiring some more health infrastructure in order to realize a greater return theirs is sitting at around two dollars returned for every one dollar invested but obviously that is still a good return we would all put money into an ISA that was delivering us that sort of return so yeah really encourage you to do this and the rest of this paper is glorious there's the top 10 conditions by GDP that inch that 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 are impacted by closing the gap the top of which is menopause goes through premenstrual syndrome depression migraines all the way down to ovarian cancer if you're an entrepreneur, or even if you think if you're thinking about entering entrepreneurship, or even thinking about a potential solution, I'll tell you what: give this a read, and um, you might get ten or twenty ideas come out of this for potential companies. It's a, a cracking piece of work. That stat actually that you just mentioned there about menopause being number one, I find I don't find that surprising necessarily. But what I and maybe this is the echo chamber that I exist in. I don't know. However, most of the women's health solutions that I see are not focused on women's health. It's predominantly fertility. It's predominantly like cycle tracking, I guess, earlier in your lifetime, um, understanding like the fluctuations of your regular cycle rather than an irregular cycle caused by menopause and the symptoms associated with it. So I'm really interested to see that that comes up as number one. And in Pigeon this week, we've um, we've covered a story about a company based in France called Omana, which has created an app to support women going through menopause. But I genuinely don't know the answer, whether it's my echo chamber due to where I am in life or that that is actually reflective of the reality of where most women's health solutions are focused. Yeah, super interesting. It is really interesting because um, in speaking to physicians about women's health, they said that they get about between one to four hours of education in medical school about um, menopause and perimenopause and that journey for women, 
which is not a lot of information. Um, and if you, you know, speaking to, to women of very different ages, if you ask them when they felt their worst, many of them would say during menopause. And I think the, the similarities between their experiences are striking. Um, and the ability to manage those symptoms with, with a guide or a tool or a, a journal or, you know, a digital solution, I think are really great. But so I'm not surprised to see menopause at the top of the list. It is surprising and disappointing that so few solutions are addressing that, that big concern that women have. Definitely one for all the entrepreneurs listening. Uh, much opportunity. So carrying on with the theme of, of course, women's health, but talking a bit more about investment, because we know that that's the thing that everyone's interested about. One of our other stories this week is from Forbes, and it actually predicts that 2024 is going to be a standout year for women's health investment, which is, of course, really exciting. And some of the data that it quotes is that obviously from 2023 it says that deal size in women's health despite there being fewer raises deal size in women's health actually increased so the ticket sizes were much bigger and of the percentage of funding that went into healthcare women's health saw a 59% increase in terms of their percentage of that funding that it received so there's some really interesting kind of indicators there about the fact that potentially, you know, women's health could have a great year. But I'm also interested, coming to you, Francesca, given that you obviously know and understand this space much better than anybody else here, um, what you think about what the fun- the world of funding looks like at the moment? And, you know, is that misplaced optimism, not just for women's health, but more broadly? Because I know everyone's talking about how hard the past few years have been in terms of raising capital, it's much harder graft. The criteria is much higher. The the bar is so much higher. And yet, you know, it's it's well known that there is still capital ready to kind of deploy. So, what, yeah, what do you think? What do you think it's going to look like? So I, I think it has to, is is the, the short answer. You know, what we've seen after the, the COVID boom, if you will, in digital health and, and even biotech, um, there just haven't been the same number and size of deals over the, the past few years. You know, when we started men in 2022, we were having conversations going straight into a series A, a sizable series A with no team, no product, just based on what we were endeavoring to do with the, with the company. It's obviously been much harder than that since then. Um, you know, we have managed to raise via, you know, angels and, and some, some VCs that are aligned with our mission and vision. But there's a lot of dry powder out there and it hasn't been deployed. No VC wants to give money back to their LPs. So eventually something's going to have to give. I was hopeful to hear more optimism coming out of JP Morgan last week. I didn't. I've spoken to a number of people who were there and, you know, the, the, the general thought is, well, we'll see things, you know, should start opening up, but we've heard that now 
literally for the past 18 months. So I think no one, no one was prepared to see the investment landscape get as, as grim as it has been. Um, it has to get better because it, it's, it's hard to imagine that it can get much worse than this. But we are starting to see conversations uh, at, a, at a different, at least I can speak personally from the conversations that we're having they're at a different level of interest. The levels of diligence are kind of back to where they, they should be. But Jessica, you're absolutely right. The bar is much, much higher than it than it's ever been. I've had seed and pre-seed VCs asking for revenue traction, which was unheard of. You wouldn't even have those kinds of conversations or or use those terms until sometimes, you know, Series B a few years ago. Now, Series A investors require, um, you know, some traction in the market. I've even had conversations where pre-seed investors have asked for both regulatory clearance or approval and revenue traction, which to me is just underscores the, the hesitancy with which the investment community is operating these days. You know, seed is meant you seed the company <laughs> so that you can create a product that eventually gets to scale. But if you're applying growth metrics to a very early stage company, it's not going to support their success for sure. I've unfortunately over the past several months have had a lot of discussions with CEOs of really amazing companies that are looking to do really good work that have had to shut down because of, of lack of, of financing. I'm, you know, an eternal optimist. I think you have to be if you're an entrepreneur. So I'm hoping that it will get better. I can't see it getting worse than it's been. I've seen, you know, a number of booms and busts over over my years as a as an investor. I was a biotech private equity investor for a number of years and then a, a digital health venture capitalist. And um, this is by far the worst I've seen and, and the most prolonged and sustained blip, if you will. It's funny because what comes to my mind is that if I was an if I was an LP right now, or indeed, actually, if I was a GP, if I was if I was a general partner VC, if I, was, if I was running the VC fund, if I did have money to spend, now is a really interesting time for people to put their money where their mouth is, because it's like if you're managing a hedge fund, like when everything's down, like that's the time to buy, and actually as long as you back yourself that it's going to go back up, right? If you think you're the one that can spot the ones that are going to go up, you buy when it's down. Right now, if you advertise yourself as I'm deploying capital, you're going to get inundated. But if you back yourself to actually find the good ones, then actually deploy what you've got. Deploy what you've got right now. Now's the best time to do it because everyone's going to be looking. So your deal flow as a VC is likely to be at its maximum now if you start saying that you've got money to spend. And actually, if what you say is true and that you're good at identifying early stage founders and you're good at picking these things up, well, actually, of course, everyone's good. If you've got a pre-revenue, if you've got a pre-seed company or a seed stage company with a million ARR, there's less skill behind identifying that as a good company. If you find the one seed stage company with a million of revenue, I, that's not a particularly skilled decision to make. The skilled decision to make is where you've got absolutely none of them with revenue and you back yourself to find the best ones. 
I guess what I'm saying is that right now is a time where you could back yourself as a good investor that understands team, that understands dynamics at the earliest stage and deploy some stuff because the good people are looking. They're just amongst a lot of other people looking. It's just not as easy to place bad bets right now, which is why there's less capital knocking around because people are more afraid to place the bad bets. But I don't know. I've been thinking about VC a lot recently and like there's a lot of my content that's gone out that's that that's been around like is there a better way to start funding things have we got a better way of like thinking about this because you know throwing money at stuff that may or may not work as you say that's the that's that that is what goes into a seed stage investment you're seeding a company on the little information that you have on a promise of many assumptions working out the skill of the investor is to know those assumptions versus facts and I don't know. Yeah, it's a funny one. It's my little rant for the week. But I think it's the, you mentioned the fear, and I think it's fear that's driving indecision rather than decision. So we're finding mm. a lot of companies super interested. And then rather than, you know, focusing on the fundamentals for an early stage company, the fundamentals, our team, our product, our go-to-market planning, not necessarily traction, mm. You know, there there's a lot more very emotional decisions that are being made out of fear at a time when, you know, you do have your your pick of the litter, so to speak, and you can mm. choose companies that you think are, are best positioned to be successful in the future. But it's really changing the face of venture capital. You know, in Spanish, venture capital is called capital at risk. And it's less and less capital at risk being deployed, and it's much more secure, de-risked capital. Yes. Uh, many of the funds are investing in their own portfolio companies because, one, their portfolio companies aren't able to get funding yeah, aside fun. from you know the syndicate of investors that are, that are there. So yeah. some of that dry powder is being deployed back into their own portfolio mm. companies. But the, it's for them, it's a known entity. And so it's kind of, you know, this, mm. this fear of the unknown that's causing this, this reticence to invest and this hesitancy when, when making decisions. You know, we have been in discussions with companies, with funds that are far longer than they should have been for the stage we're in. And ultimately, you know, there was just fear. They said, well, we just don't know right now. And and I said, well, yeah. are you not investing at all? And they said, kind of. <laughs> so that's, that's not great. Mm. Well, my controversial comment for the week is that if you back yourself and VC is actually a skill, back your skill, invest. I like it. <laughs> Otherwise it's not a skill. If it's a skill, like no matter what the conditions, like, oh, we don't know. Like, no, that's your job. Like th this is the environment. Like let's pull on the skills, knowledge that you have to invest at a difficult time. What are the principles that you back yourself on? What are the, what are the processes that you have? What's the diligence that you do? How do you place your bets? And if you're not, if you're not backing that right now, then why should I back it with a nice blue sky and the sun's out and everything's rosy and there's lovely deal flow and it doesn't the, the LPs aren't too bothered whether you return that much money to them as long as you return something get over the hurdle rate like I don't like I don't know like 
surely now is the time where you really want to be turning to some VCs that come strong in the market and go, do you know what? We actually understand times like this and we're ready to deploy. Come to us if you meet this, 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 and this, and, and we're going to help you through this. If I'm going to criticize my own argument there, though, I do think you're right about looking after their own. I actually think that's fair enough. I think that's actually quite values driven and also like that's a fair use of of capital and all the rest of it. I just think if I'm an LP, I'm turning around to my my VC fund there that, that I've invested in and I'm going like, come on, now's a fantastic what time. What are we paying you my for? Hedge, my hedge fund manager's like buying like crazy. Like, so actually, come on, like throw some bets down like if you back yourselves or else I'm going to put my money into fun to somewhere else. I, I think some of those difficult conversations between LPs and, and, you know, GPs are going to start happening and have happened over the past mm-hmm. few months. But to your point, if they have the expertise that, um, that they use to convince the LPs to get into their funds, they're going to have to start showing their stuff because at this point they're That's not going to reinvest. I don't know if that's too controversial to put out or not, but like, I feel quite strongly about this. I like it. Like, unless there's something I'm missing, unless unless there's a part of the story I'm missing, in which case, let's get a VC, let's get a, a currently investing VC on next week to come and uh, to come and debate it. I mean, I was going to make the point that uh, if you are calling yourself a pre-seed VC and asking for regulatory and for revenue. You probably aren't a pre-seed VC. And I mean, that kind of pales into significance with James's rant just now. However, what I did want to say is that I do find the labels that we use around fundraising right now to be, I don't know whether it's outdated or it's just chaotic, but it's kind of just meaningless. At, At the end of the day, like, it doesn't seem to really correspond to anything. It doesn't correspond to the criteria. If you look in Pigeon this week, we're covering a 55 million Series A. In what world is that a Series A? So therefore, it just makes that label redundant. It it doesn't help us categorize these raises or understand the VCs that we should be going to to have the conversations to bring in that capital. I think they, you know, if they want to stick to their guns with certain you know, benchmark or criteria, they have to stick to that rather than sticking to these labels of, you know, we're pre-seed, we're series A, series C, whatever they are. Like, just be more transparent about it. Don't don't try and make people feel shit when they're trying just, as you say, seed a company and then grow it to get to those, to get to that point. Like, it's just, it's so confusing to me. I completely agree. And I think if you're a pre-seed investor and you're, the risk you're taking, you're putting, you're deploying, you know, 100K, 500K, a million, a million dollars, euros, pounds of capital, and then you're requiring the, the metrics of a much later stage company to de-risk that relatively small investment, I completely agree that then you're not a pre-seed investor. But if you're not a pre-seed investor, then you need to up your check sizes because you're you're going to be investing more to take on potential more upside. So it's this weird dichotomy that you know you don't want to invest too much, um, but even when you're investing a little, you're putting these untenable requirements on the on the startups that you know it becomes this this virtuous cycle of just nothing getting done. <laughs> 
Okay, so that's me yet again putting the VC Worlds to right on the Pigeon podcast, which I was not expecting even myself to do again. Uh, it's not that I'm against VC, just to be absolutely clear on this. And I know lots of VCs and they're lovely, talented people. Um, I don't know what I'm asking, but I think I'm just asking for uh, them to believe in themselves a little bit more at the minute and help the founders out there. But wrapping that up, um, Francesca, before we let you go, Tell us a bit more about Nen. You've launched incredibly exciting times. What have you got planned? Yeah, so we're incredibly excited to be launching Nen and to offer Nen to families um, and kids who can benefit from it. Um, we've, we're launching in the US, the UK, and Spain. The platform's available in English and Spanish and can be downloaded on the Apple Store or Google Play Store. To be honest, we didn't plan to go direct to parents uh, as quickly as we have. We've only founded NEN two years ago, and the incredible team has done an amazing job bringing a really fun product to to the market and to, to kids. But what we were hearing was that, you know, there were just no solutions out there in the market. And parents actually asked us, hey, can you guys get us something sooner so one of the things that has been so heartwarming in this is this in this journey has been the the willingness of parents to help uh, help us and help us um, co-design the platform with with the kids. Um, the kids have been amazing and completely unfiltered, which has been wonderful and harsh. Um, but we've hopefully what we've created now is a product that the kids really like. You know, we know we're competing with Minecraft and Fortnite and Peppa Pig. And so we want something that's really fun for kids that they can get um, get the benefit of, of pain management out of it. So, you know, we're we're super excited. One of the core values for us at NAN is um, to be able to give back and to help leverage digital solutions to democratize healthcare. And so we have a program that's a buy one, share one program where for every family that purchases access to the solutions, we're going to earmark um, that same solution for another family who can benefit from it, but who may not have the ability to pay. Um, we're also working oh, very nice. closely with the the 15 or so hospitals that um, that we're collaborating with, and they're going to be um, helping us to spread the word about NEN. Some of them are going to be press releasing. Some of them are going to be supporting us on social media platforms, but we're really grateful to them um, for their support and making sure that we're really sticking to good clinical science um, everything on the platform has been created by practicing pediatric psychologists, by cognitive neuroscientists, with our uh, clinician collaborators, and of course, uh, with the kids who, uh, who give us really great advice. Beautiful. And actually that final point about in collaboration with the kids who give you incredible advice. I've had a couple of pediatric founders on, on my other podcast and they say exactly the same thing very sincerely that actually the kids do give incredibly candid, hilarious at times, candid feedback of exactly what they want the platform to do, exactly what it needs to show, exactly how it needs to be from a UI UX perspective. Um, <laughs> they are very clear in their feedback occasionally. I don't know whether that's been your experience. 
Absolutely, it has. And it's so much fun working with the kids. Um, you know, you, you have to have a, a really tough skin <laughs> to take on their, their, uh, their suggestions, I would say. We had um, this one little boy, <laughs> we were doing testing uh, over the summer, and he saw one screen and it had three little dots on top. And he, he immediately face, face palmed and he said, oh, I'm going to have to read so much. So he knew <laughs> that that meant that there were there were a few screens that he'd have to kind of scroll through. Um, and then we were called out by another little girl who who said, you know, you need to have a game for every single module of the activity. So we took her <laughs> advice, and that's how that's how we've built it. But um, you know, they they take their jobs very seriously. We yeah. at the end, we give them these T-shirts that say "Men Testers," and um, you know, I, we've had a couple of kids, even in my kids' school, that we had some some testing with healthy kids. Mm. And it, it almost became this this status symbol, you know, who was an end tester and who wasn't and what they had learned on the platform. And and it was it was just really cool to see. So, you know, they have we've been working from with kids from the beginning and with parents. Um, and they've been really such huge advocates for wow. us um, and have really helped us create something that, you know, we're really proud of and we, we think is, is great. You know, sadly, we've also had many parents working with us that have lost their children mm. as a result of their, of their, their cancer. Um, but they still wanted to, to help us because they, they thought, you know, if, if their experience could potentially help another child, um, you know, they were really willing to help. So the families we've interacted with have been, really amazing and um and we're so grateful to them for for their time and and sharing you know sharing a, a silly afternoon with us going through this uh this gaming platform absolutely um francesca thank you so much for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure we're going to put the details for nen and everything everyone needs to know in the description of this episode um but yes it's been an absolute pleasure thank you and we look forward to having you on another time Thank you so much. It was really, really nice to join you both. Uh, for anyone who wants to get all the stories from today, you can head to healthtechpigeon.com. Uh, we're going to be back next week with all of your health tech news. So we will see you then. 